3: Support for Mississippi Edition comes from Mississippi State University Center for Distance Education, providing online programs and certification at the graduate and undergraduate levels. Distance at State, even there you're here. More information at
1: distance.msstate.edu.
4: Good morning. It's 830 on Thursday, March 29th. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, another legislative session is in the books. We find out what lawmakers see as triumphs and defeats.
1: You know, we won some, we lost some. There's always a next year, but next year is an election year. So I'm doubting there's going to be much controversial bills that we're going to be dealing with.
4: Then we'll hear from a voting advocate on the issues facing Mississippi women and on what can be done to create change in the state. And in our book club, it's author, strategist, and poet Steve Kistelins on his debut novel, Panorama. That's all coming up. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Mississippi lawmakers are headed home now that the 2018 legislative session has ended. Lawmakers adjourned Wednesday.
3: Thank you, Mr. Speaker. I hereby move that the 2018 Legislative Session of the Mississippi House of Representatives stand adjourned, signing die.
4: During the three-month session, a 15-week ban on most abortions was enacted, although a judge temporarily blocked the law hours after it took effect. Lawmakers were unable to pass a bill to provide more money for repairing roads and bridges. Legislators also failed to pass a new public education funding formula, which Lieutenant Governor Tate Reeves says was disappointing.
3: There was not, obviously, um, the adequate number of votes in the Mississippi Senate to get that bill passed this year, um, although we tried very hard. And so that particular bill uh, is, a, is a definite disappointment to me.
4: Legislators did enact a $6.1 billion budget that provides a little more money for some state agencies. Also, the Medicaid program was reauthorized. Despite the victory, some lawmakers are expressing frustration with the session. Republican Representative Gary Chisholm of Columbus says the House did their part. He tells MPB's Mark Rigsby the Senate did not.
1: You know, we went one some, we lost some. There's always a next year. As long as you're, uh, uh, but next year is an election year, so I'm doubting there's going to be much controversial bills that we're going to be dealing with. I was came here with the goal of doing three things. The Republicans did. Number one was change the education formula. We passed it. Senate did. The other was to do something for roads and bridges. That seemed to evaporate, you know, and we really got some little token bill that we have to have an increase in revenue of 2% to be able to do anything, so I don't think that that's going to have much effect. And then the other thing was to do Medicaid, and it looks like we may have a Medicaid bill.
0: The items that you had named, and maybe some other ones that you didn't name, kind of put a dark cloud over what we did over three months or maybe it could be a little disappointing in in some people's eyes what do you think Uh, certainly
1: you know if if you come down here and your goal is to accomplish three things and you only got one this wasn't a productive session for what we house republicans wanted but as any bill it takes two houses and the senate wasn't willing to do what we agreed to they come back with a nothing bill, you know, that it that it appeared to us. It
0: sounds like you're disappointed. It sounds like you're also uh, a little disappointed in the Senate's
1: actions. Yes, the frustration is that I don't think the Senate worked as hard as we did to come up with good, a good piece of legislation, like our bills dealing with the uh, road and bridges and infrastructure. And I think they did a Highly publicized deal right there to last, and this is all I'm going to do. And, you know, we'll just not have one if y'all don't agree to ours. You know, we've been doing this for about, with this lieutenant governor, for about uh, uh, seven years. And it's just sort of like uh, fingernails on a chalkboard. It's just very irritating. So finally, what do you go back and tell your constituents that
0: wanted to see something done on education and on infrastructure and other issues that
1: the Republicans
0: over in the House side just couldn't get done this year?
1: Talk to your senator. The way the Senate works over there, you really need to follow the leadership, but after next year, he won't be the lieutenant governor. So they might need to sprout some wings and do something that's not in line with him you know, uh, of all ways, his way or no way.
4: Representative Gary Chisholm. House Democrat Greg Holloway of Hazelhurst, agrees the session had some disappointment. He tells our Mark Rigsby there were a couple of highlights.
3: Well, I I think we had um, initially started out, we had some some quality bills and some good intentions for this uh, legislative session. But the longer the session went, a lot of those good things died along the wayside. And so uh, at this point in time, I don't think that we've had much of a very fruitful uh, session this year. We've done a few good things, but uh, the things that we really, really needed to do to uh, help serve the people that we represent in the state of Mississippi, I don't think we've done nearly enough to, to satisfy those needs. What was the most disappointing part for you? I think uh, the transportation aspect of it, you know, we have a very serious problem with our roads and bridges all across the state. It's just very dangerous. Um, infrastructure has just crumbled to um, a degree that uh, I've never seen before or we've never seen before in this state. And uh, we just haven't addressed uh, that issue yet. And that's very critical. Uh, it's a safety issue. And it's very important to the people that we represent across the state.
0: I was speaking to some uh, Republicans uh, today. They're calling this session disappointing.
3: Would you agree with that? Yes, I would say it is very disappointing. Uh, this is the second year that we we haven't had a bond bill. Would you go as far as saying it
0: was a win for Democrats?
3: I think the Democrats uh, came out uh, fairly well in this whole process because uh, most of the, I guess, internal uh, disputes are fighting. Uh, occurred among the the Republicans themselves Uh, and they really didn't come out with um, what they really needed to do for the people of the state of Mississippi as I said. Any
0: highlights from this session at all? Anything that we can take good out of this?
3: Yeah, we could take the fact that uh, we did not destroy uh, funding for uh, public education Uh, with Ed Bill. I think that was one of the most important things that could have happened. What do you now go back and tell
0: the people that you represent?
3: Well, I can go back and tell them that, you know, we um, gave it our all. We uh, fought for the things that, you know, they believe in and the things that they need. We weren't able to be able to produce all of those things. But the Republicans did not deliver on uh, those important things that they should have been able to deliver on this this particular session. And so we try to work with them as much as we can, the Democrats, to, to try to produce those things. But it just didn't happen this session. What about the performance of the Senate? Well, the Senate is the Senate, of course. Uh, they um, killed a lot of good things that we had sent over to, uh, to them from the House. We had a couple of uh, bills. I thought they Free tuition for community colleges, I thought that was a very uh, good bill um, and it would have helped a lot of uh, young people across this state. Of course, they killed it in addition to not having a bond bill with uh, special projects in there for our district.
4: Representative Greg Holloway. Republican Lieutenant Governor Tate Reeves says he's disappointed with the failure to pass a road and bridge repair bill and the education funding rewrite, but he says his senators are not to blame. Instead, he says opponents to the new education formula created confusion, leading to public outcry. It's an issue he says they'll pick up now.
3: I think that we're certainly going to uh, continue to look at that issue. It is not an issue that I have talked a lot with my members about in the last 10 days because we've been focused on other issues Uh, but as we go into the off season it absolutely we're going to sit down and talk to our members about what they are looking for
4: the 2018 legislative session ended yesterday three days early coming up we'll hear from a voting advocate on the issues facing mississippi women and on what can be done to create change in the state this is mississippi edition on mpb think radio
2: MPB has always been a big part of my life. I grew up listening to it, and now I can give back and be a part of the mission by volunteering. And that's my MPB story.
0: Share your story using hashtag my MPB story.
4: This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. Mississippi women are poised for political gain as some groups celebrate Women's History Month in March, The month has also proven to be a time of firsts for women and women's issues in the state. Diane Ferguson is president of the North Mississippi chapter of the State League of Women Voters. She says the same issues that challenge women around the world are also affecting Mississippi women.
5: Especially in Mississippi in politics, women are so desperately underrepresented. At practically all levels I think we here in Oxford are very fortunate to have a woman mayor in office right now who is a very forward looking forward thinking person Robin Tannehill Uh, we've had a woman mayor before but that's been a number of years ago but I think I don't have any statistics at hand but I think the number of representatives in the legislature there are do not reflect the population in terms of women and they certainly don't in the Senate and that's one of the things that we would like to focus on in the league is is working with the groups who are trying to get more women encouraged to run. I know this is a banner year for women candidates all over the country running, but I don't see that so much in Mississippi. And. Just because a person is a woman doesn't mean necessarily that she's more qualified than anyone else. It's just that we want to be sure we get the right women in the right seats. We want to be sure that whoever is running for any office, be it male or female, is qualified and capable. I don't think that we should reduce politics or anything else to gender issues because there are some very qualified men who run for office. There's some equally qualified women who run for office. History tells us that men, just because they're men, have leg up. That's what we want to change. We just want to make it open for everybody to run.
4: What about actual voting? Do more men vote in Mississippi than women?
5: I don't think that we have a great many statistics on that. I wouldn't even know where to go to look. Uh, There's a little group called Mississippi Votes who's working hard to gather statistics on voting issues. And one of the startling statistics they've given us is that there are 350,000 people in Mississippi eligible to vote who aren't even registered. And so we, we don't have... This lack of statistics hurts us. It hurts the state. It hurts candidates because they don't have have that kind of data.
4: Governor Bryant appointed Cindy Hyde-Smith to fill Senator Thad Cochran's seat until the special election in November. What's your response to that? She's the first woman to sit in a Senate seat for Mississippi.
5: Well, I think that is a very historic thing that he has done. I think he selected a strong person to put in there. She has a record of achievement in Mississippi, both in the Senate and as Commissioner of Agriculture and Commerce. She made history with that election being the first woman elected in Mississippi to a statewide office. I think the more women we can get in the Senate, the more civil and organized and competent the Senate will become. Governor Bryant signing
4: the most uh, restrictions on abortion into law and brought the focus of that topic to Mississippi. Do you think that it helps women or does it diminish women's choice?
5: Which is more important? It diminishes. For a man, any man, any body of men, to dictate to women what they can and cannot do with their bodies. And uh, I read somewhere the other day that someone is proposing a six week ban on abortion. You know, it's not possible always to know that for every woman to know that she's pregnant at, at six weeks. I very strongly support a woman's right to choose, and I don't think that's something that should involve anyone other than a woman, her family, and her doctor.
4: Some of the other subjects that affect women in the state, for instance, child care costs, can be a real problem for women who want to work and not being able to afford hiring someone to take care of the kids or not making enough money to justify having somebody watch the kids. How do we address that problem?
5: I had one daughter, and that was an issue when I was ready to go back to work a year after she was born because at the time, the jobs that I could get, it didn't make much sense to go back to work and pay somebody else to take care of my daughter. And it's gotten worse. I think what we could do to address that, or we should have addressed it in this recent tax bill. I don't believe it was addressed there. I don't know, other than raising the minimum wage, because it's not a living wage, and providing universal child care in the form of early childhood education, which research tells us is the answer to solving many of society's problems. If we focus on children in these early years when they do so much of their learning and make sure that we have something in place that provides good child care, there are models around the world that. We have not even thought about in this state or even in most of this country. It's a society problem, but society doesn't seem to be interested in answering it.
4: What would you say, the League of Women Voters, number one, number two on the list of of how you hope to affect change in Mississippi?
5: Well, number one is getting those 350,000 non-registered voters registered. And number two would be educating the public about candidates, holding public forums, making opportunities available for the public to come meet with the candidates, ask them questions about their positions, get clarification on issues, and just keep in front of the people that being a participant in democracy is necessary if we're going to keep democracy. Nobody can afford to sit on the sidelines and just watch it being done our whole focus is to keep that idea in front of the public all the time yes it's not just your responsibility to vote it's your right it's your time to let your voice be heard and it it matters that everybody participate and that's the message that we're trying to get across to our community and our state
4: Diane Ferguson is the president of the League of Women Voters, Oxford or North Mississippi. Thank you so much for being with us and sharing your thoughts, Diane.
5: Thank you. It was a pleasure.
4: Coming up in our book club, meet author Steve Kistilentz as he talks about his new book, Panorama. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think
5: Radio. The next MPB season pass is going to be a special show. It's going to be a little different. So if you like a good story and you like to reminisce, I think you'll like our interview with Mississippi Sports Hall of Fame member, Lake Speed, world kart champion, NASCAR winner, and Jackson native. Today at 10 a.m. on MPB Think Radio or on the internet at mpbonline.org.
4: This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. The first novel by award-winning poet and former Millsaps College professor Steve Kistelens is garnering public attention. He's adding author to his list of roles with this month's release of Panorama. Having published two books of poetry, Kistelens has referred to this time as the birth of both a novel and a novelist. He tells us more about his debut piece about human loss and contemporary American culture.
2: When you talk about tragedy and these news stories that dominate a cycle for a day or two, whether it's the Pulse nightclub or uh, the shooting at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School or a plane crash or a train derailment. We very rarely consider that the victims of those tragedies are our neighbors, our friends, the people that sat next to us at church, the people that we play tennis or golf with, the people that we know in the office. And One of the things that I absolutely set out to do was try to get people to understand the huge circle of lives that are touched by something like this. You know that the plane is going to crash from page two. So it's not a mystery. It's not a thriller that way. Seventy-seven passengers and six crew. That's the language of an anchorman on the evening news. But those are 77 individual lives. Those are six airline employees, highly skilled pilots and flight attendants and other crew. And they each have a family and a story that goes outside. So one of the things I set out to do was to understand how in an event like this, all of those stories come together into the braided rope that we kind of think about as a news story.
4: The focus is the aftermath. And how it affects those individual people so long after the national interest has subsided, this goes on, as you would expect it to go on because of the people who are affected.
2: Yes. And I wanted to show that the pressure that the 24 hours puts on people means that in many cases these life-altering decisions have to be made and you don't have – all the information you need. You're never prepared when someone close to you dies suddenly, much less in such a public and and tragic fashion such as a commercial airline incident. And then the main character, Richard McMurray, uh, as a result of the plane crash, he's going to have to uh, raise his estranged sister's six-year-old son uh, and he's just absolutely, utterly unprepared to do so. He has no idea about where kid his age would go to school where Richard lives. He has no idea what a kid eats. He has no idea where the kid would even sleep because he's a bachelor and has a one-bedroom apartment. So I like to think that though the book sort of ends with Richard running off to find the child and bring him into his instant family, I'm very interested in what could happen later.
4: Here are family members, friends that are victimized by the death of their loved one, and they're usually assaulted, in a sense, by the media wanting to get more information and find out about them. Is that included in the book?
2: I wanted to show that the machinery is going to be fed regardless of the human toll. And so towards the end of the book, one of the characters is watching the morning news, like the the local break-ins on the Today Show type thing. And there's a train derailment in Chicago that has a possible fatality. And you see the machinery of that instant response. Television start to switch to cover that story. And that, to me, seems like how we investigate tragedy.
4: There's a quote before the book ever begins. It says, the trouble with us Americans is we always want a tragedy with a happy ending. Does that quote run parallel to what you're writing?
2: Every one of these major news stories is actually many stories rolled together. It's the story of the incident. It's the story of the failures of the system to anticipate the incident. It's the story of the people who respond to the incident, sometimes heroically, other times, as in the case of the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas shooting, maybe they didn't respond at all or they didn't respond in appropriate fashion. But mainly the stories that we tend to remember are the stories where people achieve that moment of greatness in their response. And that's what we crave. I think if something positive comes out of all of these incidents, like these school shootings, and we see this new energized generation of young kids, maybe that's a long-term tragedy with a happy ending. In this book, I thought of that quote, mostly because When you have so many people impacted by such an incident, obviously there can't be a happy ending for everybody. And so it seems to me to be the perfect example of a kind of naive American optimism. That's what we want, even though intellectually we know that a happy ending isn't possible for everybody.
4: Steve Kitzelins is the author of Panorama. I thank you so much for coming in, Steve. Thanks for having me. Stay tuned to MPB Think Radio for a full slate of Mississippi-based programs all morning long. Coming up at 9 o'clock, it's Creature Comforts. Then at 10 o'clock, it's Season Pass. And at 11 o'clock, stay tuned for Southern Remedy Kids and Teens. Did you miss part of the show today? Find past episodes of this and other Think Radio programs online at mpbonline.org or by downloading the MPB Public Media app from the Apple or Google Play stores. I'm Karen Brown. Join us again tomorrow morning at 8.30 for the next Mississippi edition, only on MPB Think Radio.
3: Support for Mississippi Edition comes from Mississippi State University Center for Distance Education, providing online programs and certification at the graduate and undergraduate levels. Distance at State, even there you're here. More information at distance.msstate.edu.